Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast Part 1 episodes are designed to be self-contained, fully satisfying experiences in themselves. But for hardcore philosophy fans, we record for another hour or so to release behind our various paywalls to folks that pitch in to help us make this show. What you're about to hear is a preview of one of these Part 2 episodes. We hope you enjoy it. Hey, you're listening to Partially Examined Life, Episode 280, Part 2. We've been discussing Lakatosh's falsification in the methodology of scientific research programs. He had been discussing Popper's, at least a version of Popper, the dogmatic falsificationism, which is probably how we describe Popper. But what he actually attributes to Popper is something more subtle, which is this methodological falsificationism, which I think is just captured by that he acknowledges, yes, you can't just make a theory-free observation that could then refute an existent theory. There's not that sharp distinction between theory and observation. But when we're doing experiment, we do it provisionally. We're assuming for the sake of the experiment that the Keteris Paribus conditions hold, that the background theory we're just going to take as given. So we can only test one thing at a time, but that doesn't mean that later we wouldn't turn around and try to test what we're right now calling given. So that is, I think, for him, strong enough to provisionally say this experiment, yes, did definitively falsify thing, but at least the way Lakatosh depicts it is, let's put all this stuff in quotes because it doesn't really falsify it. It just, based on these other assumptions, it would have falsified it. Yeah, he's describing Popper as a methodological falsificationist, which he takes this brand of falsificationism as a kind of what he calls conventionalism. And conventionalism, the meaning of that is we sort of make methodological decisions when it comes to these conflicts, say, between a theory and an observation about which one we are going to privilege. So, Mark, as you point out, the methodological falsificationist understands that an observation is predicated on an observational theory, that there are experimental techniques in light of which we interpret the facts. And what they do is they say, well, look, these relevant techniques, say, for instance, the way we purify a chemical element for the sake of weighing it in an experiment, this is something we've done for a long time. It's been agreed upon by scientists. And we understand that it's not just a basic observation. There's an observational theory at work there, and it could be problematic. But for the sake of argument, let's say we're going to treat that as not subject to question. So we'll treat it as unproblematic background knowledge. So another example, for instance, that if we have a well-established theory of radio optics, we might be able to refute some theory that's newer and more novel. We're going to feel like our radio optics theory is better grounded. And so these sorts of decisions, you know, we understand that they may go astray, they may not be right, but they're methodological. None of these, by the way, solves the Keteris Paribus problem, according to Lakatosh. So that doesn't go away. That's one of the problems with it. And there are other risks, which is just that these sorts of conventionalist methodological decisions can go, as Lakatosh puts it, disastrously astray. Maybe the radio optics theory is wrong. Maybe the purification of a chemical element is actually not being done properly. We don't always know in these cases. So the way Lakatosh sums this up, really methodological falsificationism and dogmatic falsificationism, they have one important 
problem in common, which is that they are trying to treat testing and experimentation as a kind of a two-cornered fight, he calls it, between theory and experiment. When really we should be thinking about this as a three-cornered fight between rival theories and experiment. And that's his kind of lead into his solution, which is what he calls sophisticated methodological falsificationism. We don't have to make an arbitrary or methodological decision about how to treat anomalies or about whether to prefer an observational theory to a theory theory. We're not simply doing falsification anymore. We are kind of holding on to a theory until a better one shows up to replace it. But anyway, we'll get into the details of that as we get into sophisticated methodological falsificationism. The paragraph before where he introduces sophisticated methodological falsificationism, I think, helps out. Just before this, you know, he's sort of wrapping up methodological falsificationism. And as you said, he points out the two-cornered fight rather than that ought to be sort of three-cornered effectively. So if, as it seems to be the case, the history of science does not bear out our theory of scientific rationality, we have two alternatives. That is, Popper isn't quite right and previous accounts of scientific rationality aren't right. One alternative is to abandon efforts to give a rational explanation of the success of science. Scientific method or logic of discovery conceived as the discipline of rational appraisal of scientific theories and of criteria of progress vanishes. We may, of course, still try to explain changes in paradigms in terms of social psychology. This is Polanyi's and Kuhn's way. The other alternative is to try to at least reduce the conventional element in falsificationism. We can't possibly eliminate it and replace the naive versions of methodological falsificationism characterized by the above by a sophisticated version, which would give a new rationale of falsification and thereby rescue methodology and the idea of scientific progress. This is Popper's way and the one I intend to follow. So he's understanding himself as that Popper didn't quite get it right, but he's extending and fixing Popper's mistakes. And uh, the very beginning of the next section, to me, summarized like what he thinks are the key parts. Sophisticated falsificationism differs from naive falsificationism, both in its rules of acceptance or the demarcation criterion and the rules of falsification. So we're going to find out why we want a theory to be science versus suicide. Well, what's that criteria? And also, how do we get rid of it? How do we say, oh, well, this theory isn't true anymore? The acceptance is just for the naive methodological falsificationists. A theory is scientific if it's falsifiable, right? So regardless of whether it ends up being true. For the sophisticated version, acceptable only if it leads to the prediction of novel facts, or as he puts it, has excess empirical content over a predecessor or a rival. And then ideally, some of that excess content is corroborated or verified empirically. And then as far as falsification goes, as we've discussed in the methodological version, we get a conflict between a quote-unquote observational statement, right, in quotes, because we recognize the theory of observation involved there, you know, so a conflict between that statement and a theory. In the sophisticated version, it's no longer this conflict between the observation and the theory. A theory is falsified if another, a better theory comes along, basically, a theory that has, predicts novel facts, facts that are often improbable, right, in light of the first theory, or maybe even forbidden by it. 
a theory that explains everything, right? And the way the general relativity can account for everything in Newton, can explain the previous success of the other theory, and then makes predictions, you know, just like Einstein did, that turn out to be true, that weren't accounted for by the previous theory. So the way gravitational lensing and the perihelion, so you can have novel facts that have already been discovered, like the perihelion of, of Mercury. But yeah, that's the basic idea that he gives us right up front in this section. So what we uh, get in the rest of the sections are a explication of sophisticated methodological falsificationism. It's funny how much of a mouthful it is, but maybe we should start calling it SMF the way I do in my notes. <laughs> but in particular, right, he wants to tell us what standards SMF is going to give us to adjust auxiliary hypotheses, right? We need some guidance on how we do that. Yeah, we're going to get the standards, but it's also going to have features of it. And maybe that just comes a little bit later. Features of it that also, I think, from Lakatosh makes it part of the undergirding of it. You know, you learn from experience with it and, you know, it preserves that. And you have, uh, you know, as a sort of activist approach to knowledge. The fact that his account sort of naturally incorporates those things to him is a, a big positive. If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to partiallyexaminedlife.com slash support. Thanks for listening.